trauma can leave you stuck in a victim mindset, leaving you angry and blaming the world for what you feel is going wrong in your life. And today's guest, spiritual teacher, coach, fellow podcaster and friend Nino was stuck in that victim mindset and in our wonderful conversation reveals how he woke up and began to take his life back. This is one powerful interview you do not want to miss. Hi, I'm Paul Shepard and welcome to the Mindset Change Podcast, helping you transform your mindset so you can change your life. If you've not yet subscribed, please do because there are some incredible episodes coming your way and you really do not want to miss another episode. And welcome Nino. How are you doing? Thank you. I'm doing very well. Thank you. Yourself, Paul? I am really, really good. I'm really excited for our conversation. I enjoyed talking to you the other day and uh, really enjoy the energy that you have when um, when we were conversing and there's so many great points. I think my listeners will really uh, get a lot from this. I think there's going to be a lot of gold in our conversation. No pressure on you, by the way. <laughs> good, good, good. Um, yeah, thank you so much for having me on. I'm I'm happy to be here. I think you're somebody who I kind of see as a little bit as like a a mentor in a way. Not that you are my mentor, but just like mm-hmm. I think you have a lot of s- similar and like-minded values as myself. Um, but perhaps on our journeys, I just find myself perhaps still in an introductory phase of it, so to speak. I don't know. So I've learned a lot from connect. you. I really enjoy your content. So, um, you know, I, I really appreciate what you're doing. So just as, you know, we go into... Um, what you do and why. Um, actually, just let's get start there for a moment. Can you just tell my listeners who you are, what you do, and what has led you to where you are now? Absolutely. So my name is Esteban Nino Palacio, and I go by Nino. Um, I'm right now a guide a, or a life coach. I am an actor, an artist, a poet, and a writer, and perhaps also a cultural com- critic or commentary. Uh, or pundit rather. Um, I have a podcast called Where's the Nuance directed around trying to bridge dogmatic ideologies and trying to see past the dogma of the black and white and introduce a little bit of nuance and color. As I fundamentally believe that a lot of what grips and ails the human race and their suffering isn't so much the objective nature of our reality, but often it's the way we think about our reality and it's the narratives that are constructed in our lives that end up to a lot of suffering and pain. And within my own life, that was, that's what has driven me. I was an extremely depressed and anxious and angry and resentful and bitter individual growing up. I had no, I had every objective reason to be in so far as I believed that narrative. And in so far as I believed that I was a victim of the world, I truly was and I had and I could always pin at it and I could always find a reason to be and when I was 18 years old I had I thankfully hit a very very low point in my life and I was I witnessed the compassion of a father and a son whose wife had just died in the Paris attacks and the father and son made a video to the ISIS attacker and said that they forgive him and it was this beautiful sentimental compassionate display of of love and compassion over fear and hate and something inside of me like arose in that moment. And, and I realized that if these people could find the compassion and love to, to love and forgive the murderer of their wife and mother, then 
then what the hell was I doing in my life? And it started a catalyst, a change. And I got my psychology degree with a minor in counseling. I became heavily invested in the spiritual traditions of Buddhism, of Mahayana Buddhism, of Hinduism, and of the New Age mysticism in regards to, you know, Alan Watts, Eckhart Tolle, and even the psychedelic realm of Terence McKenna. And within all of these experiences, I now, I want to share what I found, which is the capacity to honestly write new narratives, to write powerful stories that empower you and inevitably to engage in practices in which you no longer need to write any stories. And the truth of what I have now found, which is <laughs> there is love and bliss in this present moment. And when you can attune yourself to it, it's really hard to, it's, it's really hard to complain about life. And that's not to say that life doesn't have its grievances and suffering, but there is something special and magical found within each one of us. that's already there. And in part, I'm trying to, I'm trying to help people see what I see in myself and what I see in every, everybody else, which is a deep well of love and connection. Wow. There's so much to unpack there. I'm not sure where to start. Um, but <laughs> let's go back to what was going on for you as a young teen that led you to see that video? What was happening? Yeah, well, my parents were Colombian. Well, we were all immigrants to Canada and they had grown up in Colombia. Um, they were lovely and intelligent and compassionate and loving parents. However, at the same time, they were quite traumatized. I think that they'd experienced a, a lot of trauma in their country. It was the most dangerous country on earth during their, uh, while they were being raised, more dangerous than active war zones. You know, seeing places getting blown up by narco-terrorists, uh, you know, all losing friends and family to that kind of stuff. And so they had a lot of fear and trauma in their own life. And I think, unfortunately, they placed a lot of that on me in, in many ways. And it, I was a highly sensitive child. So those moments of explosive anger or conflict within the household became my reality. And it's how I started to see things. And then from a young age, unfortunately, at 13, uh, my grandma killed herself. And it was a very, it wasn't something that was easily discussed in my family, because these weren't, my parents didn't have the luxury of getting to talk about their feelings with their parents, let alone talk about it with their children. So these were, it was an initial traumatic moment. And unfortunately, within two years of that, my aunt was murdered in Colombia and it was a very gruesome murder. Um, and that struck another uh, chord, obviously in our family. And, and I, and I took refuge in, in marijuana and MDMA and anything that would give me a high. But the, but the, the fact of that was, I had all these internal sufferings and trauma that I wasn't talking about. I wasn't discussing with a single person and I was internalizing them, repressing them, and then projecting my anger and frustration and frankly pain onto everything else around me. And then as I was developing, even by 21, my best friend overdoses and dies, um, which again, felt like another hit and felt like a continuation of my life with a lot of grief, unfortunately. However, it wasn't just like, not to compare, but it was very traumatic loss of which I wasn't able to discuss with anybody or feel comfortable talking about. And I, be I became very alienated. And I know for a fact through my own experience that it's the alienation and the resentment that one builds that then leads to the most destructive people. And I know that in myself, I, I was angry. I hated people. I was so judgmental. I had little self-love for myself, mostly self-contempt and judgment. 
it, it was this weird blend of I thought I was better than everybody, but I hated myself. And, and, and that's a very destructive and dangerous place to be in. Do you know, I can really relate to that. I think when you're, you know, I, I'm nowhere near um, a childhood like yours, but just being bullied left me to live in a world where I felt like I was the victim. Everyone else was the enemy. Um, I felt better than these mm -hmm. people because I wasn't treating people the way they were. But in a way, I kind of was. I was yeah. um, in, uh, caught up in this very angry mentality. I just didn't know what to do with the emotions I had inside of me. So it, it was easier to take it out yeah. on on other people. Um, and then what? So yeah. obviously, that's that, obviously so much going on for you. And is that what yeah. then? You know, obviously, this video you you, you got to see of the a Paris attack or was there something else that was beginning to build up yeah. to that moment? You know, there was a few, I think different factors in my life that kept me from going off into the deep end and that were like anchors into the, I think the life that I'm living now. Some of which began when I was young, I was an actor and the exploration of characters in the art was always something I found really fascinating because it was one of the few avenues in my life where I could take these deep emotions and then transmute them into a performance. And I was being rewarded for that. I was being celebrated. So that was like one of the healthy avenues that began anchoring my emotions to something a little bit healthier. There was also um, ph uh, philosophy, specifically Plato and Socrates. When I was 15 and 16, I was in an AP literature class and we got to read the allegory of the cave. And we were also reading Brave New World uh, by Aldous Huxley and George Orwell's 1984. And I actually ended up finding a lot of intellectual solace in the idea that perhaps there was another aspect of reality I wasn't experiencing. Perhaps I was in a cave. Um, in Plato's allegory of the cave, there's prisoners, mm -hmm. if anyone's not familiar, who are inside of a cave and they're chained up and they've been staring at a wall. And on this wall are projections, shadows uh, that are being uh, projected. And that is their entire nature of reality. Until one day, one of their chains breaks and he stands up and he turns behind him and he notices there's a fire and there's uh, puppeteer people, uh, you know, putting things over the fire to create the projections on the wall. And these people were creating a false reality. And he continues to walk out of the cave because that's still inside the cave. And he actually leaves the cave and suddenly it's so bright he can barely see. He's blinded. But as his eyes acclimate, he realizes there was an entire world that he wasn't made aware of. And in his excitement, he runs back inside to tell the other prisoners. And because he, he, ha he just hasn't adjusted to the dark again, he's hitting himself. He kind of, he's tripping and the people down there think he's an idiot. So, but when he starts telling them, Hey, there's this whole world out there. They're like, you're an idiot, dude. We don't need to listen to you. Get out of here. They actually berate him and abuse him. And it's, for some reason that story like held with me. And I, and something in my gut told me, this is real. This is real. So by the time I'm 18 and I'd, I'd had some psychedelic experiences, which had begun to have the experience, the experience of maybe there is some other aspect of this reality that I'm not touched, haven't touched upon fully. All of those kind of factors are in place. And then at, honestly, it was funny. That same week that I see that video, I have a, <laughs> a powerful psychedelic experience as well as an experience with a professor in my humanities class. And this is all comes together in which I, I, she dis dismantles me. She's my humanities professor. And she asks a question going, how can you know what you know? 
And I, being the arrogant, resentful 18-year-old, thought, what a, what a dumbass. I, I know what I know because I know it. What do you mean? So I put my hand up arrogantly and I start answering. And she starts using the Socratic method, a.k.a. just an inquiries of question. I tell her, I know this because I read it here. She goes, well, how do, how do you know that they know it? Well, because this person is a scientist. Well, how do you know that what they know? Well, because they have a method called the scientific process. And inevitably, you get to a point where on some level, everything you know is based on a degree of faith. Like there, there yeah. isn't true knowledge. There is no such thing as true knowing. And that was exactly what I needed because finally my ego or sense of self was kind of broken. Then I have the experience of watching the video, the compassion that arises from that. Finally, the ego was opened a little bit. And then I have the psychedelic experience where all of these things I've been learning in my life come together and I realize I have been in the cave. I am the guy in the cave. I have been inside of this cave. I have been living within a mind frame. I thought the world was as it was because I was so certain that I knew what I knew, but actually the world isn't so concrete. I mean, very literally, the idea of a country, what is that if not an imagined border of an idea that we all collectively agree upon? Or in another language, it's a del an agreed upon delusion. And, and I've started to recognize that a lot of my life and suffering was an agreed delusion. I had agreed to my pain and suffering, but unwillingly, I was unconsciously sleepwalking through my life. And I think and this is perhaps where my cultural commentary side comes in. I think a lot of us are doing that. I think mm -hmm. a lot of our culture does that. And I think the media is in part to blame. And I don't think I'm not the kind of person who attribes malicious intent. I just think that's the function of the ego or our sense of self wants to perpetuate itself. So it has to keep telling itself things that it can identify and attach to. However, that is the very basis of our suffering according to the, you know, the Buddhist law of suffering and, and also in my own experience. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, I, I'm, I'm loving just listening to your journey. It's very powerful. I'm just, I'm just listening to how you woke up, you know, the trauma of your past led you to a variety of experiences, which seemed to be almost like a synchronicity, uh, a group of synchronicities coming together to, you know, obviously there was this intention within you to be more, than um than you are in other words to wake up to to move on from the cave um and that's what i, I hear that quite a lot you know and lots of people i speak to it's they say oh i've hit rock bottom or you know it's it, it can't get worse than this and it's a terrible thing and i often say to people but this is a you know we often are, are reborn from situations like this because we've got mm -hmm. to listen to these messages with inside ourselves that we can't continue we can't continue the way that we were so we have to begin to yeah. wake up and we, we and we're not very good at waking up because of something positive we wake up because of pain no <laughs> that's that's exactly it that's exactly it which is why i think i'm a little bit masochistic when i see the world because i'm like i i i delude i mean i'm i'm happy when i see people in pain and i again i, I don't say this lightly i just mean that mm. When I see people who are beginning to suffer consciously, because I think a lot of people suffer unconsciously, we have their their life is feels empty, but they don't know why. Now that's not rock bottom. The rock bottom is yeah. starting to see why, and that is the, that is I think the precipice of true growth and and rediscovery and transformation. Because I think of myself and I go, when I was a teenager and so attached to who I thought I was, and I kind of like I liked some aspects of myself, even you know, not that I. I, you know, I don't, I don't hate everything that I was, but it, it was a lot harder for me to imagine radically transforming 
to transform how I thought about myself in the world because, you know, there was a comfort in it. But thankfully, you know, at 18, I move out of the house. I'm in a new place. I'm uncomfortable. I'm being confronted by these professors and these ideas. And I'm not liking who I am on my, on my lonesome. That is the perfect conditions to let go of ego. How can we let go of an ego that we're attached to and in love with? That's a very difficult thing. It's a lot easier when you don't yeah, like yeah. it. <laughs> you're well, you're almost if, willing to give it up. Well, that's the thing. I think for a lot of people, though, and I, and I, and I can relate to this, if you're not aware of your ego, then you are your ego. Mm. It, it, that's just your, it's just your yeah. identity. You don't know any different, you know. And I, I, I do subconscious trainings, and yeah. I read, you know, with my meditations, and it's always about becoming aware of, mm. you know, that part of you that thinks this, feels that, uh, and beginning to just distinguish that it's not you; it's a part of you that's been conditioned into you. And I love that you mentioned the media because I do think. Um, that the media colludes with our ego to numb it, to to yep. to, to over to force feed it, if you like, because um, all of the industries do food, junk food, drugs, drink, porn. They all tap into this inner child of us that you know within, within us. <laughs> that's the ego, and again, that's the part of us that wants to do those things. The true self has no interest. It doesn't no care. Interest, yeah. <laughs> no interest at all. But the, but because we don't really know how to separate ourselves, we let the ego dominate our behaviours. And there are companies making billions Absolutely. out of it. <laughs> and that, that's what. But that's it's a really great people thing. People are waking up. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very powerful incentive motive to say, this is who you are. create an identity and make sure to make that identity somewhat shallow or with a void and then i can sell the thing that can fill that void mm. you know and, and that's yeah. kind of how the media operates i need people to identify as this and why because the way i've manufactured this idea is that it needs this and i sell these things you know and it's it's very brilliant i mean again yeah, it whether it's a malicious intent or opportunistic capitalism it's brilliantly executed because it works I, really I, well. I don't know if it's malicious i think it's there are a team of psychologists and engineers who whose main focus is to keep you hooked on their products yeah. because that's that's how they make their profit. You know, and if they can convince you that you're not good enough and that you'll be better if you buy this new product or experience or you know or um, ingest it, uh, snort it, uh, smoke it, you know, there's a whole vaping thing going on at the moment. Um, then you're just yeah, oh happier, healthier people, and it's like. This, this is all we're doing is uh, we're chasing after uh, cheap dose dopamine. As we, uh, you know, it's quite well known that it's becoming a, a major epidemic in society. But it, it does. It's people norming. Yeah. I think people are numbing their trauma, which these companies absolutely kind of I, I did. I did that my whole life. Yeah, yeah. So, what would you say yeah. to someone? I mean, it's obviously there's been a lot of trauma in your history. What would you say to someone in regards yeah, to coming out, coming out of that? You know, what would, what advice would you give? Um, I'll be honest with anybody listening. So that was like my childhood story of trauma. Just this past summer, my cousin who helped raise me, he was the only other family member I had in Canada. He was like my older brother. He shot himself in the head. Um, that sucks. I'm still yeah. grieving that. It hurts my, like, it hurts my soul and heart. Now, whatever you're going through, I imagine that you feel a pain like that, like it, it hurts. And that I will never try and take away from you because that's like the truth is that you will always carry 
a sense of that pain with you for your whole life. I think that's what grief is. Mm-hmm. Now, in part, though, it's how we change our relationship to that pain. Now, I had a profound experience recently when I was trying to figure out how how can I how can I deal with this grief, this recent loss? It was so big in my life, and I realized, well, firstly, I had been causing myself more pain and suffering because I had mis, you know, naively interpreted that the way I have to keep them alive, so to speak, is by constantly ruminating about them, constantly keeping them in my head because otherwise I'd be doing them a disservice and I can't just forget about them because they played such a big role in my life. Really, I was creating a narrative around my pain. And ironically, the truth is when I began letting go of him, began letting go in the sense of allowing myself to be present, that's actually when I was the most connected with his spirit, with his love, because it is in the living resonance of your love and your ability to transmute that loss into loving and kindness. For instance, anytime I think about that loss, all I think is, wow, I really need to make sure to treat people in my life with love and compassion and make sure they feel alive. Mm-hmm. And in that process, I've kept that individual Andres, more alive than I ever could in my, in my, in my, in my sad musings and meandering of the mind. And And I think that for anyone going through trauma, it's the same thing with what you're going through. You do need to take time to feel it. And and it's going to take time. It's not an overnight thing. And if you think you can spiritually bypass your way through it, you're just going to repress some deep emotions that will inevitably come up to get and bite you in the bum. But when you take due time, and I really do mean like time to sit with yourself, not distracted, not smoking weed to numb it, not drinking to forget just sitting with it, feel the grief and allowing those waves to pass over you and then allowing yourself to step out of it and forget about it. Like in in a way, like allow yourself to have fun with your friends. You don't have to feel like when I, I felt so much guilt a month after or a few weeks after he passed, I, I had a vacation already planned. So I was in New York and I was having the time of my life and suddenly I feel this shame and guilt and then I go, how dare you? You just lost like your older brother and you're having fun. And so then I end up blacking out and drinking and, and, and pushing myself into a hole because I should feel bad. But again, that's a narrative. I constructed a narrative around the fact that I was living presently and said that somehow was a disservice to the individual who's passed, as opposed to recognizing you that's the most beautiful thing. If somebody truly loves you or whatever trauma it is, no, they want what's best for you. Nobody wants you in pain and you don't, you shouldn't want yourself in pain either. So allowing yourself to let go of the narratives around your trauma and be present and be happy without holding on to any guilt or shame is the truest and most honest way of keeping their love alive because it lives within you and in your heart. So yeah, I guess that's what no, I, would I love say. that. Such great words of wisdom, and I think that would really help anyone listening to this. Who's again, it's it's very easy, isn't it, to get caught up in the guilt that you're yeah. okay and someone else isn't okay or they're no longer here with us, um, and it just becomes this heavy backpack that people carry around, and they're just not sure how to put down or when it's appropriate to put down. I'm glad that you mentioned you, you you talked about alcohol just then and I know that from one of your posts yeah. which uh, there's a lot of response to um, you've changed your relationship with alcohol uh, t- can you to let me know a little bit yeah. about that 
So part of, I think, my own spiritual development and growth is recognizing, and even psychological development is recognizing, I am in relation with everything in my life. I am in relation to people. I'm in relationship to the food I eat, to the substances I use, to everything. And I had been ignoring a, a thing that was a very present reality in a 25-year-old's life, which was alcohol. And I was thinking that alcohol was just a, a substance that you can't be in relation with it. And rather, the problem is, you know, like, I, I don't know, that that there was no deeper thing to take about it. Like, it was fine to get blackout as long as it's only once a week. Like, I, I was very, you know, statistic about it. Um, and I tried sobriety. I, I, I cheated on my ex-girlfriend when I got hammered one day. I got blackout and I did something and I didn't even remember, but I felt so much shame that I was like, oh yeah, I'll stop drinking. But I didn't stop drinking because of alcohol. I just thought that that was a way to make sure I didn't do anything bad again. Um, and I actually didn't end up becoming a better boyfriend or anything. I still think I treated her poorly. I, I didn't end up becoming a revolutionarily better person. And then I started drinking again and I started to recognize that alcohol wasn't necessarily my problem. My problem was my relationship with myself. I was carrying pain and resentment because I had just been cheated on by my previous, uh, in my, my previous relationship. And now I was projecting that pain onto that relationship. And beyond that, my alcohol was just the thing to use for any pain in my life. Uh, you know, literally the day after my cousin took his life, the next day I was blackout the entire day because I, I, I don't want to think about it. And I realized alcohol was actually my solution. Alcohol was the amazing solution to every time I felt pain. And it was really easy for me to say that alcohol was like my problem. But actually, now that I found sobriety, I realized my problem was my own ego in regards to pain and how I would propagate pain in the way that I would treat others and use my own pain and the things I've experienced to then project those experiences onto others. Like, you know, you get it's so cliche, but you get hurt, you get cheated on, and then suddenly you think, well, whatever. Like you, you start discounting the pain that you're going to cause someone when you do that. Um, and I have found a lot of clarity in sobriety. And again, I say just alcohol free because for myself, my relationship with alcohol has always been around alcohol as a, a symptom reducer of pain. I have never, I have not, I don't think I've honestly ever used alcohol in the way that culture suggests that it's used for, for social connection and for fun. I have a lot of fun and social connection sober. I, I honestly, I, I love to talk. I don't need it to, to, to grease my social wheels. I just liked getting drunk because it was an incredible way to not feel pain, to not feel loss because you are so, but again, it's this irony where you think that, and then the next day you have the worst hangover, the anxiety that makes you, suicidal and then you're you're just waiting and itching for the next time you get to feel good again and, and it's quite a destructive cycle um especially in my own life it was so and it's weird because i had had a lot of growth in my life in so many other areas but alcohol was just this thing that i didn't want to let go of because i was so scared that i would be alienated from my social group because Alcohol does play a big role in people my age's 
life for the most part. But I've now found that that's the silliest thing ever. What it does is it frees up time for you to engage in them practices, values, and activities that are aligned with your core self. And when you do those things and you create space in your life for them, oh yeah, big surprise, you create space for the people who are engaged in those practices and activities. And they may not be sober, but you no longer feel you know obliged to have to engage in an environment that you're not actually, that isn't serving you. So that's been, I think, my big shift with alcohol. And I don't see myself drinking right now or in the future, perhaps one day when I, but right now I just, I think my experiences with alcohol are too close to me in the time frame that I just don't, I don't see it happening right now. No, it's a good place to be. I, you know, I'm with you on that. It's as, as a mindset coach, you know, I'm talking about what I've been talking about, the information from the past year, somehow I was in denial about the level of impact, you know, the level of impact alcohol had, even just a couple yeah. of drinks, was something that I just could no longer justify even doing. And um, yeah. obviously people have different relationships with it. And, but there seems to be a real reckoning. A reckoning. People, people are really, really beginning to address their, their relationship with certain things now. I keep, I'm hearing it more and more. I'm seeing so many coaches and people um, in, the, you know, in psychology, in the spiritual world, going, actually, what am I doing? <laughs> you know, it's an, I'm really reassessing uh, their habits because it's just something that, with, like with me and alcohol was, well, you just did it. It was just something, it was, you don't even question. <laughs> exactly. the, only people who, yeah, the only people who stopped were people who had real problems with it. Um, not not right. someone who, I didn't really have a problem per se with it. I've made some bad decisions <laughs> at times, but um, other than that, <laughs> it was something I could take or leave. But it was, yeah, it was just something that I could no longer justify. So, that, so it's good to hear your experiences. I think a lot of people can relate to how the numb, how to, to use it to to numb pain. Do you think that's what's wrong with society at the yeah. moment? Is the the constant numbing of pain? You know what I think it is. There's two things. It's either it's like this. What I what I see as a problem. Not to yeah. say that I am the purveyor of truth here, but it's like there's either groups of people who are so identified with their pain and the narratives and around their pain that they are completely encapsulated within their ego, right? Within that sense of self. And that makes them highly reactive, highly uh, easily influenced by media, by the right, by those groups that we talked about, and very divisive because they, all, they often are sold that there is an enemy to them, right? Because they are in that state of flight, fight or flight, of fear, anger, frustration. And then I think on the other side, it's a lot of apathy towards everything. Like they just don't care about anything. That total numbness, mm. that total, this is just the way things are. Why would I even begin to talk about the systemic uh, injustices and ways in which our system is inhuman and alienates us from one another? Why would I even consider to talk about that? I Because they feel powerless. And that's what it is. Is When you feel powerless, you just want to numb yourself because you don't feel like you are empowered to make decisions that would allow you to transmute your pain into something productive, right? Because everybody, if you slip out of the numbing, right, you stop numbing yourself, well, all of a sudden there's that pain and you don't mm. want to fall into that group who's so identified with their pain. So you don't see an alternative, right? You go, it's either I 
become so identified with my pain that I become a victim of the world or I numb myself and, and go with the flow. What's so wrong with that? And I, I think there is an alternative here. I think there's the alternative is why don't we move through that pain? Why, why don't we listen to our pain? I think our bodies are extremely wise. I think we are connected to an ancient wisdom, to a collective consciousness of which is trying to tell you something. Carl Jung writes about it in his book, Man and His Symbols, that the unconscious is always acting as a com compensatory uh, modicum, aka it's compensating for something, whether in your dreams, in your feelings, in your pain, in your gut. It's trying to tell you something about your life. It's trying to guide you towards some kind of life, towards some truth of yourself. And I believe that for people who are feeling the numbness, I would encourage them to, to feel their pain, to stop mm -hmm. numbing, because when you sit with your pain, it's going to tell you something. Now, it might tell you that job that you're in, what do you even like about it? You might start asking you some questions and you're forced to reconcile the fact that actually I never got a chance to live for myself. I just went to the program that my parents wanted. I went into the job that my peers told me was safe and I've never even tried to explore my genuine interests. Okay, now, now do it. Now it forces you to do that because in the light of awareness, you can no longer sit comfortably in that numbness. At least I haven't been able to. That's, and that is the double-edged sword of awareness. Once you dig into the well of yourself, you can't really go back because you can't lie to yourself anymore. Mm. Before, maybe you could lie to yourself. But once you develop awareness through practices of mindfulness and whatnot, and you begin to understand who you are, what your values are, and where your heart lies, you can't lie to yourself. So, you know, for anyone who wants to embark on that journey, be mindful, be careful. It's going to be a lot harder for you to lie to yourself. You're going to have to live a life more aligned with what you truly are, with your values. Otherwise, you're going to feel that self-betrayal. And it's not going to be as easy to numb yourself anymore. Not that, not for lack of trying, though. <laughs> no, I, I love that. I really can relate to that. I think the, you know, I think there's a real push towards integrity. And you can tell mm -hmm. That's it. there's an energy change when you're lying to yourself, when you're deceiving yourself or even someone else. There's a real shift in your vibration. And moving into the spiritual world, because this is a nice yes. little segue, um, you help people with yeah. their spiritual wisdom. Have you noticed, yeah. uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment, but have you noticed there's a bit of like a spiritual shaming thing going on, almost like a the term woo woo comes up quite a lot. You know, it's even spiritual people do this. I've spoken to a few spiritual teachers and each, I don't know, I've not even seen one yet, not be slightly almost like apologetic that they're mentioning something which they might class as esoteric or something like that. You know, I think I've, I, you know, I'm not saying that I've not done anything similar, but it's, it's used to go, oh, it's a bit woo woo, or some people will think it's a bit woo woo, almost like it's a, uh, yeah precursor to placate people who might be uh, skeptical well what do what do you think is, what that's do you what think I, that's that? what i think it is I, yeah i think when i've done that in my own life it, it is really placating but in that self that is still coming from the ego because when you really think about yeah. it you're coming from a place of assuming that they're going to judge that aspect of knowledge and thus you have to precurse it with hey i'm with you guys i i understand how you might see this as woo woo, but let me let me give it to you. I try in my own, and when in my actual content, I tr I try not to talk about like that because I, mm. I, tr I want to hold reverence to spiritual traditions. And I I typically my background, a lot of what I've studied rather, is really um, Buddhist philosophy and how to apply 
Buddhist principles into your everyday life because I think Buddhism is one of the most practical. Buddhism is one of these wonderful uh, philosophical frameworks that while there are uh, avenues of it, like Tibetan Buddhism, which is a lot like a religion, they have deities and gods and all that, mm. you don't need to believe in any of that to be a practicing Buddhist, so to speak. You could just live the middle way, the eightfold path and and practice discipline around what you eat, how you treat mm. people and your meditative practice. So I try to focus on that at least so that I can have a more far reach, I guess, in part because you, you're right. There's this idea that if I share my like deep beliefs around what I've started to see as the nature of reality, how I perhaps I see that mm. we live in a, I, I mean, my own personal belief, and this is very much aligned with the Buddhist school of thought. We all live in a universal consciousness within one mind. And that one mind is fragmented into each human body, but truly there is no separation. That's an illusion of the mind and that we are all an eternal one, the eternal mind, the great mind. And, and we, it is our spiritual journey or task or endeavor to return to that mind within this lifetime. And when we do that, we become enlightened. Why? Because when you're free of the ego or the sense of self, well, then your desires, everything falls and the illusion is pulled and suddenly you are in a kind of ecstatic bliss. And I, I love the work of uh, Yogananda, which he practices Kriya Yoga, which, you know, acclaims and acclaims some pretty far out capacities, you know, in, in his book, Autobiography of a Yogi, you know, he's experienced um, swamis who materialized in more, one more, in two places at once, or yeah, yeah. individuals who could use the, you know, who were clairvoyant. And I think these things are very hard to wrap your mind around if you are somebody and like myself who was brought up in a school system that that dampens imagination it, it really dampens the ability for the human mind to conceptualize a reality outside of that which is easily measurable and observable and as such um i think sometimes i placate my own spiritual inclinations because i'm like oh i don't want to close myself off to the people who have been brought up like every, like most people who've been brought up in a system that you know that says that that is ludicrous that it's um, and that's why for me, I think the most powerful avenue that I have found is psychology because psychology is this brilliant new emerging science, which is in its infancy. Don't let anybody tell you that they understand the brain now because of fMRI. That is a load of crap. We don't. It's the most complex yeah. object in the entire universe. Other than the universe itself, it is the most complex thing. There are more neurons in your brain than there are stars in the Milky Way, trillions upon trillions in that regard. We are now learning things when we learned, for instance, many people have heard of the placebo effect. Now, when you're taught that in your undergraduate degree in psychology, they, they teach that fact as if it was some ridiculous thing that happens to people who are gullible, like, haha, gullible idiots who take a mm. sugar pill end up seeing, uh, claiming that their ailments went away when really we didn't even give them any product uh, that reduced the symptoms. Really what we're finding is that the power of belief and within the mind and the mind has a way to reinvert itself, to reprogram itself, to create biological, physiological, mental changes that actually objectively can be measured is a profound realization. And the more that we develop our tools of measurement within the realm of psychology, we're finding that, well, in fact, Meditative practices seem to literally change the structure of your brain such that you're less emotionally reactive. The, the places mm. in your brain that are, uh, you know, the amygdala that's more uh, reactive 
all of a sudden aren't. So I'm trying to use the link between psychology, the psyche and spirit as an avenue into guiding people towards spiritual wisdom that I now see as profound truth without trying to sell them on the spiritual truth, because I think it's a harder sell in a way. It's harder for me to sell you on there is a prana or a life force that connects all living things and all the atoms in the universe. And through a, a yogic yeah, yeah. practice, you could fundamentally change the nature of reality. It's a harder sell. It's an easier sell for me to say, for instance, your thoughts create your reality. And I'll, and I'll break it down like this. Now, there's something called priming in your brain. Now, we know that, for instance, if you prime someone's brain like to see a red car, that person will now claim that they see red cars everywhere. It's not that the objective nature of reality somehow changed, but it's that the brain is an incredible pattern recognition machine that you can reprogram. Now, in the same sense, if I'm someone who tells myself every day that I'm full of opportunities and love and abundance, and this life has so many beautiful things waiting for me, you've primed your brain to now find opportunities and opportunities for love and connection. And suddenly, as if magically, you're, you will start noticing these things. And I, and I think that if I can ground that kind of spiritual wisdom in a psychic reality without having to, you know, dance into the mm. esoteric too much, I can, I can bring people in because actually my, my gut tells me, Paul, I'm, we're not going to get everybody. I actually think that there are some people who will never, like their brains are wired in such a way that they don't they're always going to need a grounding in some kind of objective nature of reality. And I think psychology is perhaps the link where we can, because it's, it's mystical enough. It's aligned with the mystical enough where the wisdom can come through, but it's, it's the language of it maintains a kind of a homeostasis for the individual who, who, who can't leave the, the empirical reality of, uh, of objective science, so to speak. Um, so that's what I, that's how I've noticed myself placating spirituality, but how I try to then ground it in at least something that I have experience in and, I, and I'm quite knowledgeable about while still yeah. giving people the tools that I inevitably think if you put these things into practice, you will start seeing an entire layer of reality that wasn't there and that will empower individuals as opposed to disempower them. No, I, I'm, I'm with you 100% on that. It's um, yeah, so much we could have had another whole po podcast episode on what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, for sure. But, but, it, but it is. It's it's. I I I get it because um, I've, I've been on another spiritual journey. There's, there's more doors opening up again, which is which is absolutely lovely. Um, and it's uh, there's a there's a whole. It, it is the psychology side of things. Just helping people understand, even from a psychology uh, perspective, about. The parts of the brain, the reticular activating system, you know, priming. You know, yes. you, there are ways of in do, helping people begin to be the creator of their reality without having to be esoteric about it. But it's interesting, though, how many people who go down that path come back and go, you know, how did this happen then, and how did that happen then? Because it can it can feel so magical. <laughs> You know, and, and in my, you know, I've had so many experiences where I'm like, how is this just a coincidence? How does that work? And I you know, and I'm not, I'm not saying it isn't, I just because it just seems so so bizarre. But I, I, you know, it's good to have an open mind. To I think spirituality is about having more of an open mind that there's more than us, that there's something bigger than us, 
And whilst that's all, well, whilst we might not know the truth, let's just be the best version of us. And that, and that means letting go. Isn't the greatest lighter. spirituality? Yeah. Yeah. Isn't, in, in a weird way, isn't, in my way of thinking, the greatest spirituality is extremely logical in a way. It's like, I'm going to, now that I've understood the perceptual limitations of the mind, of the brain, of which there are so many, and anyone who's studied mm -hmm. cognitive science knows how limited and biased your brain is. It is not an accurate perceptual system in the slightest. Then yeah. logically you go, well, then I'm clearly not perceiving reality objectively. And anyone, even our systems of perception that we've created because it was made from us, are biased and incoherent to the accurate nature of reality. As such, the humility of actually there's no way for me to know the objective nature of reality lends itself to the open mind of possibility, right? And mm. it's all very logical. And like the most logical thing is going, I, I can't accurately, for instance, we talk about coincidences. What is, when you think about the logical nature of how our, our universe came about, the probability of your existence is is infantile. It is the least mm. probable thing. So as such, it's like when you, you need to, the logic of that should in hopefully open your mind to the fact that your existence in of itself was born out of the impossible. As such, your entire life and, and existence is born out of those incredibly incoherent possibilities. And you shouldn't close yourself off or discount things like, for instance, the word coincidence, it's just a coincidence. Okay. Yeah, but yeah. if, it, if you have been able to find a symbolic meaning with it, it's not just a coincidence. There's a reason why one of the greatest minds in psychology, Carl Gustav Jung doesn't believe in coincidences. He doesn't, and he comes from a very psychological point of view, mm. but he thinks that anything in which a, a human can grab a sense of meaning from, it means that there is in fact a message from it because he thinks that Every human psyche is connected to the collective consciousness. And this collective consciousness has such a profound wisdom because it carries the evolutionary conscious of our millions of years of human uh, evolution, that that is the true intelligence, that we should humble our thinking mind that thinks it's smart unto the unconscious aspect, aka the spiritual dimension, because that is what he would suggest is the highest intelligence, that which carries millions of years of evolution. How could, you know, it's kind of egotistic of us to go, the mind I've developed in 25 years, that's the true, that's the best <laughs> operating system. I think that's it, come yeah. on. That, that's it. That's, what about that, the operating that's system? The, that's, yeah, that's the pinnacle. I've reached the top. That's yeah. it. I didn't, need to, I didn't need to do anything else. <laughs> There's nothing more to know. You know, I've got life sorted out. Um, <laughs> Uh, but I, I, it's, it's synchronicities are a strange thing. I interviewed uh, Sky Nelson Isaacs recently um, in regards to uh, he wrote the book Living in Flow, and um, he talked about the science of it, which was which was mm. amazing. You know, I don't understand half of it to be honest. It's uh, a level of quantum physics <laughs> that just makes my makes my brain start to um, feel like it's going to physically bleed. But it's uh, but I'm interested that there are people <laughs> out there who's who's um, who's who are that fascinated by the actual. Uh, the term synchronicity and coincidence that there's a whole science behind it and he references young quite a lot within his in his books oh. because of just a, just a perspective that this has been something that's been studied for a very long time and talked about you know for for centuries that the more you begin to align with who you really are 
Um, and that's work, as we both know, the more you begin to release your trauma, obviously that means that there needs to be an awakening, which usually is the pain side of things. But the more you begin to align yeah. with yourself, the more you begin to notice these synchronicities, uh, which do seem like they come yes. out of nowhere. And that lets you know you're on the right path, you know. And I, I think that is fascinating in itself. What would you say, um, what would you say for you was the best piece of spiritual advice that you've ever received it's gonna throw that one at you mm. <laughs> it's best piece of spiritual advice mm. it's hard to say there's one but i think i think honestly is that like spirituality doesn't happen in the mind it happens in the body i don't even know if that's mm. a piece of advice but something i'm like that's coming to me right now because yeah. when i first was when i was 18 and i i talked about all that the big catalyst, it's not like the next year or within a few months, I was radically different. In fact, Eckhart Tolle's book was amazing, A New Earth, and it was so profound that I got excited. And what happens in that excitement, my ego really wanted a little piece of this new this new identity that was arising. And as such, my ego, what it did, because the ego is a clever, conniving part of ourselves, my ego inflated and wrapped itself around all of the new terms I'd learned soul spirit this that and suddenly i was now identified as enlightened like i was like yes i am enlightened as opposed to the the true wisdom is recognizing i am there is nothing else right yeah, yeah. but because i had no real wisdom i had no practice in my life suddenly i really thought I was in my head about spirituality, analyzing everybody else's behavior. That's their ego. That's them. Yeah. And I wasn't actually turning into myself. So the thing that got me out of that, thankfully, and like what I think is gives me real wisdom is a practice, a spiritual practice. And I mean like a meditative, disciplined practice. There's a reason I, why in... Uh, in Kriya Yoga, for instance, discipline is a huge part of it. And, and, and to be honest, in most spiritual practices, monks don't just sit around joking off all day. They have a lot of discipline and structure, yeah. and especially within their practices. And this is because, in my experience, there is no real way to know yourself unless you have a practice like that. Now, of course, you can you can have moments of clarity. You can have moments of insight around yourself. But if you don't have a discipline that helps you cultivate mindfulness and awareness to understand who you really are, who you are beyond the story, who you are beyond the name, who you are beyond the memories. If you don't have a practice that shows you that, you're always going to think you're that. And, and if anything, your ego will just try and find a new one. And for instance, this is one I hear a lot, and this isn't supposed to be a jab at anyone, but the new the new age enlightened people are have a whole new identity. They're star seeds from planet Zebulon and they mm. were they're here on earth for a specific mission and their mission is this and it's a lovely tale. But in to all the ancient spiritual traditions, that's another story. You have let go of an old ego that maybe didn't make you happy and now you've created a new ego that makes you happy, but that is not true spiritual growth. Spiritual growth is the surrender is is this kind of it's crazy the wisdom of spirituality is that you have no wisdom and when you recognize you have no wisdom you get all the wisdom because the wisdom is no longer yours it's this it's this paradoxical truth of letting go of yourself yeah, freeze yeah. yourself having discipline gives you freedom 
You know, it's this very, and anyone who goes to the gym knows that, right? It's growth and discipline require, you know, you got to break yourself. It's the same thing. So I think what's the, ironically, what's the best spiritual piece of advice is create a discipline structure around a meditative practice. And, and that is, that, that'll do more for you than any book, any Vedic text, any, any Buddhist text. It's really easy to be a heady, a heady spiritualist, you know, just living up here. Uh, no, I mean, I, that, I would agree. That's probably one of the best pieces of advice, definitely. And that reminds me of uh, Alan Watts' uh, The Backwards Law. The more you chase freedom, the less likely you are to find yes. it. The more you chase wisdom, the less likely you are to find it. And it is that surrender. It is that surrender. Um, and I've, I've talked that quite a, uh, about that quite a bit in, in podcast episodes because um, when you do just let go, you know, it's uh, when you, you can have a wonderful intention, you can, you can create a powerful intention, yes. but drop the attachment to it because this is where you know, express, we know expectations cause suffering. And that's the bit that people often struggle with is the letting go. And, and also, I think it, when it comes to meditation, you can tell people are like shuddering. Oh, I'm mm. mentioning meditation again. It's why have I, it's, there must be something else beyond meditation to get to know myself. Well, there are other practices, but, but getting comfortable with being uncomfortable because it does i don't know what it was like for you but just to sit there and just terrible not do anything <laughs> yeah you're, you're, just, you're sat there just focusing on your breath doing your best vipassana uh like meditation and you're just sat there and you're just sat there monitoring your breath and the ego's going how long we got left you know you've only been doing it for 30 seconds and it's like what we have you know it will jump around like crazy but what's beautiful is that when you come through that just like when you've gone to the gym and you're it's all painful for a bit um, after a while, it, your mind does become a bit more quiet and it begins to settle and it becomes a bit easier. And then suddenly these insights and connection begin to happen. Um, and, and, and again, it's, it's a meditative practice that is a non-negotiable for me. It has to happen on a day-to-day mm-hmm. basis. Yeah. Because without that, how do I know, yeah. how do I I mean, know what I want then? Where would I set my intentions from? You know, how, how do I know what go, to go for? Right? Yeah. Uh, Dude, it's it's just like one of those things. It's I, not to be a critic, but when I hear people, self-identified spiritual folks, talk about how they just can't meditate, but but they find, but like they don't need it. I just I, I just I, that reflects yeah. something that I I don't think is the most positive. It, it tells me I was the guy, and let me tell you, Paul, and anyone listening, I was the like I said, I came from bitterness, anger, resentful, always in my head. I was over, I thought of myself as an overthinker. In fact, I was proud of that title. I had pride around the fact that I was such an, an intellectual, self-prescribed intellectual who was always thinking about things. So even in my, my first few, my first year of meditation was just me thinking until, and I, I'll never forget the day I'm like 19, I've been meditating for a year and I'm sitting at home and I'm kind of tired and I go to my practice and, and I'm sitting there. It's the first time no thought comes up. And, and I like, and I don't even notice that there's no thought because you know, I've been doing this for a year, kind of haphazardly, like whatever, just trying to get this to, mm. to do something, I guess. But that one day, I think I had like this kind of, ugh, I don't even care. And that's exactly the kind of attitude you need is don't go into it with an expectation. And, and that was the first time I ever had what I would call a mystical experience. I had a shock through my entire body. My, my body convulsed. I'm not even like joking. I started crying tears. And I had this oh. profound realization that I had, I, I had 
lived a life before, aka my awareness tapped into the divine source and recognized that the awareness had always been like my, the mm. thing that is me wasn't just me. It was, it had been before and it was this crazy thing. And I, and again, it's not like every time after meditation, that's what I got. I really, honestly, I rarely ever get an, an experience mm. like that. But the point is it really, to anyone listening, it's not easy. Like if, if, if growth was easy, we'd all be enlightened beings yes. who are self-actualized. <laughs> it's, it's not the yeah. case. It's, it's just not the case. And if you, if you think that meditation should be easy, well, it's never going to be. And if you think meditation should be hard, I don't know, then it never will. And the point is, it really is, like Paul said, it, it works best when you drop all expectations. It's great to have a why in the beginning, knowing and maybe perhaps having trust from other, other people telling you all the potential benefits. It's good to have a why. That way it'll keep you into the discipline. But eventually you got to let go of all of it. You got to just do it. And there is no ulterior motive. And those yeah. are the places where you find like true, like, oh my God, I know what I'm doing with my life kind of vibe. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's uh, the number one come thing I, I think when I say to clients, you know, because I my, 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 my meditations are a bit different. They, are, they do have long parts where people are just connecting with themselves, but they're mostly subconscious trainings more than they would be a Vipassana where you're just connecting nice. and just listening to yourself. So there, there is a difference between the two. Um, and on my um, a mindset change another level channel, there are meditations which basically I'm not saying virtually anything. I just say do this, and then it might be a ten minute <laughs> dis- yeah. disconnect with yourself. <laughs> so there's that side of things. Um, but the number one thing that most people tend to say to me is, "Oh, I just struggle to find time for it." And and I and I can relate. To, I can relate to that because it was like, "Oh yeah, I'll try." It's like a little yeah. tick box. I'll, I'll try and meditate between. You know, in that quarter of an hour there, I'll just do a little, <laughs> little one. And it would just be this like little tick box. There wasn't even much of a meditation at all. But now it's, you know, it's now there's going to be a big session each day. And it's something that just has to happen. Because if, it, you know, that's the, that's the reality. Yeah. It, it, it's as important as the day. To me, it's as, as, it's as important yes. as showering or brushing my teeth. It's just, you just do it. It's no so. What do you is there? Do you struggle? Non negotiable. Yeah. Do you find do you do you sometimes argue I with did. yourself when you're gonna? Yeah. You did. Oh yeah, of course. You know what? It was when I was drinking was the worst. So like for the most part, I was fairly disciplined. But any time I was hungover, oh just and 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 that would become a a negotiation. And when you're hungover, you really are in your ego. So I, I won that battle. I mean, my ego won that battle every time. I wouldn't meditate. Yeah, yeah. And that's, and that's what started to decrease the quality of my life in a lot of ways, because then it decreases your mindfulness. And then if you're less mindful and aware, then you're not aware that you're choosing to drink out of a bad reason. And it, it can be a cycle in of itself. And nowadays, like you said, it's one of those things I'm, I, I love job. I'm as much as I'm very in tune with my feminine side and I have a lot of feminine energy in myself and I'm not ashamed of that. I'm also very in tune with my masculine. And as such, I really love a lot of my masculine leaders out there like Jocko Willink, who's this incredible Navy SEAL man of man kind of guys. Mm-hmm. And yeah. he has profound wisdom around this, which is, it's, it's like, uh, I think it's radical accountability or radical responsibility or something, but he just, everything he does in his life, it's non-negotiable. He does not negotiate with himself and he, he does have a kind of, it's a disciplinarian within him. But it, it's a loving disciplinarian because the practices that he, in his own life, he's engaging with, he knows are fundamentally for what's best within him. And 
I have, I'm proud to say I've, I've developed that voice in myself that overpowers it all. Or maybe it's a sense of knowing that like I wake up at 6.30 a.m. and I just get up. And obviously you can set up systems in your life to make these practices easier. Like have your phone outside of your room somewhere far from you. Not far enough mm-hmm. so you can't hear the alarm. Far enough that you got to go get up out of your bed and go grab your phone. You know, you can... Set up, there are James Clear talks about it in his book Atomic Habits. A lot of what habit building is just making them easy and accessible. So I make yeah. all these things very easy and accessible for me. I wake up, and the first thing I see after I grab my phone and like turn off the alarm is a meditation pillow that's sitting on the floor right beside where my phone was. So I don't have. There's no. I don't give myself room to negotiate. The moment that I turn off my phone, the next thing I do is sit there, and it's kind of nice for me because. I actually I get to close my eyes again, so I, I I've even found a little bit of like uh, kindness in that experience, yeah, yeah. and and I and you know and I make sure to put music on, and I have like colorful lights in my space that make it I don't know that make that make it more compelling, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, so nowadays it's almost like, and also I know myself really much where when I don't meditate. <laughs> it's so funny how quickly I am miserable, yeah. how quickly I'm comparing myself to other people and and not as successful as I want to be. And of course, every day that that happens, I, I have a moment. I go, I didn't meditate today. It's, it's it, so, I yeah, don't know. Yeah, like you said, yeah, yeah. it's like, you just, yeah, you're just like, yeah. it's non-negotiable. I have to do it. I got to brush my teeth or else I'm going to get a cavity. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, God, I could keep talking to you all day. Um, thank you so much, Nina, for being on the show today. Uh, I think there's a lot of gold. I, I knew there'd be a lot of gold. There's a lot of platinum in this. It's, it's, uh, I think a lot of people will get a lot from our conversation today. Um, so where can people find you if they wanted to find out more about you? Yeah, if anybody, uh, EL Divine Nino, El Divine Nino. I'm on Instagram, YouTube, yeah. TikTok, the whole ladder. I do... I do have free workshops that I'm offering around recognizing the scripts and narratives that run our lives. Um, I also have a community called Los Niños, where again, I just give off a weekly newsletter. Just This is just more for to get to know me personally, things that I'm reading, quotes, interests. And I do offer coaching one-on-one and on group programs. And it is all fundamentally about helping people reconnect with their inner wisdom. I'm of the fundamental belief that there is no one more suitable to give you your answers than you. I think, why would anyone else know the best life for you other than you? You're the one who has to yeah. live with those consequences for the rest of your life. And I feel like I have done a good job in being a guide or a mirror rather for people to find themselves and to rediscover who they truly are so that they can start living lives aligned with themselves. Yeah, and you're truly doing that. I, I really get to see that uh, when I, you know, as I've been following your work. So, but, so thank you for everything that you're doing. Well, thank you for having me on, Paul. Honestly, yeah. I'm, I feel extremely blessed and lucky. And honestly, I feel very fortunate to have this conversation. So thank you. Oh, yeah, no, welcome. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you.